Well, good morning, uh, River City. My name is Bran. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, glad you're here. We'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the church here at River City. Excited as well to continue our series in the Gospel of John together, but if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, let me just briefly catch you up on where we've been and we'll dive into chapter 6 this morning. So, Like we've seen from the beginning, the, the Gospel of John, uh, like the other three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is kind of like a documentary about Jesus. And what we've seen as well is that John's documentary about Jesus is really unique. It's really different than the other three. He ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on and he gives us a bunch of new behind the the scenes footage, things we haven't seen before about Jesus' life and ministry. And, and the reason why John's accounting of Jesus' ministry, his kind of documentary about Jesus, is so unique and different is because uh, John's writing uh, his gospel about 20 or 30 years after all three of the others had been written, and he's writing it to a people that would have been familiar and had ability to read and, and had access to those other gospel writer accounts. And so he's writing to a people who were familiar with Jesus. And the problem, it seems, is that they'd become too familiar with him. And so at the heart of John's documentary, at the heart of this kind of new footage he brings us about Jesus is this longing that he has to wake people up from this kind of groggy familiarity with Jesus to kind of the spectacular, eternity-altering reality of who he was and who he said that he was and who he proved himself to be. Because what John's after is not just a head-level knowledge about Jesus. It doesn't save anybody. It doesn't change anybody. Instead, what he wants is that we might have the kind of faith in Jesus that's a heart-level faith that transforms our lives. And so that's why he's written the book, and that's what he's after, trying to show us who Jesus really is and that it might change us. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, one of the primary ways that John does that in the, in the first half of the Gospel of John is by recounting a number of the miracles that Jesus did. And But we saw already that John doesn't call them miracles. Very specifically, very deliberately, John refers to them as signs. Because in John's Gospel, Jesus' miracles, they're not just displays of power. They're, they're like a billboard on a highway that's meant to point to something beyond themselves. And we see Jesus' miracles are, are signs that reveal something important about who he is and what he's come to do. And we saw in the response to the first couple of miraculous signs Jesus did, right when he turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana, when he healed the official son by just the power of his word. We saw how John tells us that people came to have that kind of real, genuine, authentic faith in him, the kind of faith that was changing their lives. And they saw who Jesus was trying to show them that he was, and, and they put their faith in who he'd shown them himself to be. But last week, when we took a look at the, at the third sign John records for us in the Gospel of John, we, and Jesus heals this man who's been paralyzed for almost 40 years, and he does it on the Sabbath, we saw that the results are really different, right? Instead of people coming, having their eyes open to the truth about Jesus' divine identity and responding with authentic faith, or even just like genuine curiosity, what we saw is that people completely missed the spiritual billboard that this sign was meant to be altogether. And, and in response, they, they, they respond to Jesus' self-revelation with just callous indifference or with outright hostility towards him. Right? And what we saw in the passage last week is that that, that response, that kind of a response to Jesus, what it was doing, it was highlighting this underlying spiritual paralysis that still remained even though there was a physical healing that had happened. It was a more important heart level. They highlighted their greater need for a heart level transformation, not just a physical, external kind of transformation. And sadly, what we're going to see people responding to the signs that Jesus does in chapter 6 this morning in much the same way. 
right? And the way that they respond, it shows that their hearts are still plagued by that same kind of spiritual paralysis that keeps them from seeing the truth about who Jesus is and responding to him rightly. Like the crowds Jesus rebuked at the end of chapter 4, what we're going to see is that the people who followed him out into the wilderness on the far side of the Sea of Galilee in chapter 6, they're, they're not interested in finding out who he is. Right? They just think he's just another powerful prophet and that's good enough for them. And they've just seen him perform some impressive displays of power and they just want to see more. And yet what Jesus is trying to show them in the midst of the signs he performs in this chapter is that he is far more than just a powerful prophet. He's not just a mediator of God's provision, his rescue, his deliverance. See, what he's trying to help them to see is that he's the God of the prophets. He's the ultimate Moses. He is himself their powerful sustainer and rescuer and deliverer. So he wants them to get the more full picture of who he really is. And that's what the signs are all about this morning. So I can't wait to show that to you. Let's pray and we'll dive into our passage together. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word and for our time together in it. God, we're grateful for it. We pray humbly, Jesus, that you might just be gracious to keep showing us more of yourself this morning. So much of the problems that we see in the passage this morning, they, they're rooted in this fact that people just have this partial view of you, this incomplete view of you, and that they're just fine with it. And so, God, we pray that you'd be gracious to keep shattering kind of our incomplete versions of you with the real you. Help us to see you rightly this morning. Help us respond to you, not just, with, uh, not just by seeing you as a means to our own ends, but to see you as the end in and of itself. The thing that we're after, the thing we long for. The, not just a powerful prophet, but the true and better Moses, the God of the prophets. And so we need you for that, God. I can't just like change that reality in our hearts. Only you can. And so uh, we just ask that you would, God, for our good and for your glory, we pray it all. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be in chapter 6 this week and actually next week as well. Uh, John 6 is actually the longest chapter in the whole New Testament. It's like 70-something verses, right? And the way that John kind of sets up chapter 6 is that the first half of it, the first part of it, the first section, uh, Jesus does a number of miraculous signs. And then the second section of John is this long discourse, this long dialogue that he has with the people who totally miss what the signs are about. So this morning we're going to take a look at the signs themselves and what Jesus was trying to communicate. And then next week, we'll take a look at his interaction with the people and how he wants to help and teach them and help them to grow in it. So begins this way in John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. And Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. Jewish Passover festival was near, and when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here's a boy, five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same thing with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 
And after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching and walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. All right, so we got kind of like a miraculous triple threat in our passage this morning. Can't we just show that to you? But before we dive into what's going on in the passage here, it's actually really important that we go back just a couple of verses to the end of chapter 5 because John's really deliberately placed the events of chapter 6 right after those verses. If you remember last week at the end of the passage that we were reading, uh, Jesus is confronting the kind of spiritual paralysis of the religious leaders. And instead of resting in God's work on their behalf, they were resting their faith and their their standing with God on their own effort and their own ability to keep a bunch of rules that they had made up and so that they wouldn't break any of God's rules. And we didn't get this far, but at the very end of the chapter, Jesus, he's having this long conversation with them. At the very end of the chapter, he tells them that the thing that they're resting their hope in for salvation is actually the very thing that's condemning them. He says it this way in verse 45 and 46 of chapter 5. He says, don't think I'll accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. What Jesus is doing is there's, he's talking about, when he's talking about Moses, he's referring to the law, right? God's law came through God's people through, through Moses, right? But all this talk about Moses at the very end of chapter 5, it's not just meant as a reference to the, to the law that the, that the religious leaders are putting their hope in. John, he's a master documentarian. He's like a master storyteller. And what he's doing is he's using this conversation about Moses at the end of chapter 5 to set up for us what he's going to be doing in chapter 6. And he puts these stories together, not because they happened like the day after each other, but he puts these stories together because he wants you to see that the ideas there are connected. You see, all the miracles that Jesus is doing in these verses are about revealing that he's the ultimate Moses, that he's the true and better prophet, that he's, that he's like Moses and yet he's greater. He surpasses him in every way. As we take a look at the couple of miracles here, what I want to do is not just show you how they're meant to remind us about Moses, but I want, you to, show, I want to show you how all of them are meant to show us that Jesus surpasses him that he exceeds him, that he's greater than he ever was. The first uh, miracle that you see happens in verses 5 through 13, right? It's commonly referred to the feeding uh, of the 5,000, but what John tells us is that there's 5,000 men there. So that means the crowd that was there is probably likely closer to fifteen or 20,000 people, including men and women and children, right? And so John tells us about how Jesus miraculously feeds this crowd of people who had followed him out into the wilderness on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, right? And John gives us another little detail in verse 4 that's, again, meant to clue us into this connection between Jesus and Moses, right? And he says in verse 4 that the Jewish Passover festival was near. 
Right, the setting of this miracle and the timing of it, right, that's all very important. John wants you to see that. Right? Passover was this hugely important religious holiday for the Jewish people. It commemorated when God uh, used Moses to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. Right? And then part of celebrating Passover involved them eating a, 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 this, this feast, a meal that was remind, to remind them of the meal that their ancestors ate the night before Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. Right? And so all this talk about Moses at the end of chapter 5 and the setting of this sign happening in the wilderness, right? And, and the timing of it right before Passover, all of it's meant to get us thinking about Moses and the Exodus and God's people, his, his rescue of his people out of slavery in Egypt, right? One of the most significant miracles that God did through Moses, right, in this, in this season of Exodus as he's leading his people out of slavery in Egypt, right, was that God fed the Israelites wandering out in the wilderness with manna, right, bread from heaven, he, he called it. And you can read about that story in Exodus chapter 16, right? And it happens in the midst of the wilderness where God's people are hungry and they don't really know what to do and, and they're complaining and grumbling and they don't see a way forward and yet God provides for them. And what you see happening is that that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the past. Right? Jesus hasn't just wandered out into the wilderness for no reason. Right? He's not just like, oh man, I can't believe all these people followed me out here. Right? Like he's not surprised by that. He's, he's walked out into the wilderness because he's, he knows that he's about to show people something. And he needs them to see something about who he really is that they don't understand yet. Right? That's why at the end of verse 6 when John tells us that his question to Philip about where they're going to find bread was really just a test. Right? Jesus knew exactly where the bread was coming from. He knew exactly what he was doing. That's why they were out in the wilderness in the first place. Right? See, just like when God led his people out, into, out of Egypt into the wilderness and then miraculously provided bread for them through Moses as proof of his kind of divine authority, see, Jesus leads this crowd out into the wilderness so that, they might, that he might provide for them in the kind of way that only God can. Because he's trying to show them something about who he really is. And so Jesus, I love this, he asks Philip, right? He says, where are we going to get this bread to feed all these people? And Philip, it's like very clearly has no idea, right? He's just like, um, yeah, I hate to break it to you. Like there's no bread shops anywhere around here, right? Uh, even if there was, right, it would take like almost a whole year of somebody's wages to just even give everybody a single a single bite, right? Like, we're, like we, we don't have what we're looking for here. We, don't, we do not have what we need out here in the wilderness. Right? Simon, uh, Simon Peter's brother Andrew, right? He chimes in that he's found this little boy who has a lunch with five barley loaves and fish, right? And you're not meant to take that as like, wow, this guy has this huge faith and he really believes that Jesus is going to do something. Like, you're meant to read that as like sarcasm. Like he's like, uh, we got like a crappy lunch. And uh, that's about it, Jesus. So I don't know what your plan is, right? But like, we don't have enough, right? Like, we don't, we do not have what we need out here. And I love how Jesus is just like, okay, why don't you everybody sit down? And he just takes this this lunch of this little boy. And he takes the lunch and he starts breaking the bread. And he takes the loaves and the fish and he gives thanks to God. He just passes out to everyone. Make sure you see this: as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. Right? And you got to believe the disciples are just standing there with their jaws on the floor, right? Like that was a joke, right? Like we weren't, like it wasn't a real plan to use the fish and the loaves. Like that wasn't, like that wasn't an actual option we were presenting. 
And yet Jesus, in the midst of this kind of hopeless situation, he ends up providing radically abundantly, right? Top it all off, when everyone is full, they've had all that they could eat, they've had everything that they needed, Jesus has them go around, gather up all the leftovers, and there's 12 baskets full, right? Jesus has just used this boy's aggressively mediocre and ludicrously insufficient lunch to feed probably 20,000 people. And there's tons of leftovers, right? This meal Jesus is not just provided, but the one that he's invited people to sit down at his table at. It's not just sufficient. It is radically abundant. It's far more than is needed. See, and that brings us to how this sign is supposed to help us to see not just that Jesus is like Moses, but that he's greater than him, that he surpasses him. You see, the manna that God provided his people through Moses every morning for 40 years while they're wandering around the desert, there was always just enough. There was never any leftovers. There was never any extras. There was always just enough. And yet Jesus here goes out of his way to help these disciples and us to see that the bread from heaven that he offers is not merely enough. It is radically more than enough far more. Everybody stuffs themselves and it says that they get everything they want and there are tons of leftovers, 12 baskets full, right? Numbers are usually pretty significant in the Bible, right? Especially the number like 12. Now, some people kind of take that overboard and try to do like spiritual algebra and like see into like hidden things that are going on there and that's just ridiculous, right? But but the number 12 throughout the Bible, right, is pretty much always used to describe in reference to God's people. There's 12 disciples, there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? It's this reference to God's people, right? And Jesus is telling these disciples, right? What he wants them to see is that in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of all of their hopelessness, in the midst of the fact that they feel like they do not have what they need, that he is in fact what they need. He's the thing. His provision is not just enough to meet their needs, it's more than enough to fill them to overflowing. His resources are without limit. One commentator puts it this way, the provision Christ makes for those who are his is not bare and scanty. It is rich and plentiful, it's an overflowing fullness. And so we should never be surprised when God goes above and beyond all we can ask or dream. And there's enough just in that one little miracle for us to spend a lot of time meditating on, but we got to get to like, there's still two more miracles we got to deal with in the passage. So we got to keep, we got to keep moving this morning, right? Verse 16 through 20, Jesus is doing another miracle that would have reminded people about Moses, right? Another miracle that had to do with water. Maybe you remember Moses, there's a pretty miraculous thing he was a part of when he parted the Red Sea and there's a kind of a water miracle that happened there, right? Jesus left the crowds to go have some alone time with his father on this nearby mountain and he sends his disciples on ahead of him, right? Across the lake uh, to the other side to a place called Capernaum. And the guys are halfway across the lake. It says they've rode three or four miles, which means but when you look at the math, it's about the middle of the lake. When a storm comes up, as they often did on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples, right, they're starting to get worried, right? Because uh, I don't know about you, I'm not a sailor, right? Like I don't spend a lot of time on boats, but if there's one thing I know is that a storm on land is already a problem, and a storm at sea like takes that up and dials that up a lot more notches, right? Like there's no there's no port in the middle of the there's no port in the middle of a lake. There's no place you go for rescue in the middle of a lake. 
And their fear, it only increases when they look out and they see Jesus walking on the water towards them, right? You and I, we'd look at them and be like, oh, Jesus is coming, right? Like, they should be excited about that, right? If you didn't know that Jesus could walk on water, you're in the middle of a storm, and some dude just comes walking out onto you, like, that's not good news to you. You're like, this is the end, right? Like, we're done, right? I don't know what's going on or exactly what's happening, but this has got to be the end, right? And so they're full of fear. What's so interesting is, is the word that John uses to describe Jesus coming to them on the water, right? It's a word, John uses this very specific word, right? There's all kinds of words to describe walking in English, just like there is in the, in the, in the original language in the Greek. But the word that John's that's translated here as walking, it literally means to amble or stroll. Right, it's a word that was often used to describe the kind of walking people did. Like you, you're on a long journey, right? You got to like get off your donkey and stretch your legs for a little bit. And so you kind of just like get off and stretch. You know, you go for a little stretch break. Right, it's almost like this humorous word that John puts here. Right, you can be sure that John's not using it by accident. You see, what John's trying to communicate to us is not merely that Jesus is just walking on the water, as incredible as that already is. What he's trying to say is in the middle of a storm at sea, the most dangerous kinds of storms. Jesus is just casually strolling on the water. He's out for an afternoon walk. I see what John wants us to see in no uncertain terms, Tim Keller puts it this way, and not only does he have absolute power over the waves, but that those waves have absolutely no power over him. See, in the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha, they all parted bodies of water. But it's only God who has ever told, who has ever said that he walks on the water. Psalm chapter 89 says that God rules over the surging seas. And Job chapter 9 says that he alone treads on the waves. See, Jesus is not just the ultimate Moses, parting some water, making a way through a storm for his people. Jesus comes walking out on the wa- on top of the water himself as the Lord over the storms, the one who made the waves and in whose presence they offer absolutely no threat. You see, what Jesus is trying to help them to see is that he's not just a prophet. He's the God of the prophets the one who made the waves and who walks on them like they're nothing. And if the mere way that he comes to them on the water wasn't evidence enough of his divine identity, just look at the, what Jesus tells them in verse 20. In the midst of all their fear over the storm, in the midst of someone walking out to them on top of it, Jesus just says to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Right? Jesus, you know, he calms their fears by identifying himself, but he doesn't just say, hey guys, it's me. Right? Like, hey, don't worry about it. You know me, like Jesus, we've been together a while now. No, he says, it is I. The phrase in the Greek is literally ego eimi. Literally, if you translate that, I am. See, and the disciples get that. See, those two words, I am, would have been, they would have sent the minds of any Jewish person racing back to Exodus 3 and the story of Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. where God commissions Moses as his representative to go and turn to Egypt, liberate his people from slavery there. Moses, he asked God, who should I tell them sent me? And God simply responds to them, tell them that I am has sent you. The eternally existent God, not just another prophet, the God of the prophets has come. See, Jesus, he's not just a powerful prophet, he's the 
He is the God of Moses, the Lord over the waters. And it's in his presence that there's true safety and true security. There's the kind of rescue from that no storm and no enemy can overcome. Jesus needs them to see that he's not just a powerful prophet. He is more than that. But the miracles aren't done yet. Did you, did you catch that last one at the very end in verse 21? Teleportation in the Bible. All right. right? Like keeping it interesting this morning in John 6. They took him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. See, God used Moses to lead his people to the land that he had told them to go to, but it took them 40 years. And it was a long and arduous journey, and they fought Moses the whole way. And yet here is Jesus. He's directed his disciples to head over to Capernaum. And they're stuck in the middle of a lake in the throngs of a legit storm. And yet as soon as they welcome Jesus into the boat, they arrive where he's told them to go. One commentator sums it up this way. One can scarcely imagine that after an act of power so magnificent, so kingly as Jesus walking on the waters, that he would just sit himself in the boat and have the voyage laboriously continue by the stroke of an oar. For at that moment, when Jesus sets his foot in the boat, he communicates to it the very force of his victorious power over gravity and space and time, for which he has been so strikingly displayed just previously in his own person. See, Jesus comes to them as the Lord of the storm. He comes to them as the Lord over the waves, the King of the prophets, the one whom they all worshipped and served. And when he gets in the boat, they arrive exactly, precisely where he has meant them to end up. They're not on a long, arduous journey that needs more work to be done. They welcome him into the boat and they arrive where he has intended them to be. You see, Jesus is not just the ultimate Moses. He's the true and better leader of God's people. He brings those who travel at sea safely to their destination. He doesn't just eventually lead them where they're going when he gets in the boat. They arrive where he sends them at once. You see, all the miracles in this passage, they're meant to show us that Jesus is not just like Moses. That he's better. He's greater He's the God of Moses, the true and better leader of his people, their glorious prophet and priest and king. He doesn't just mediate God's provision and rescue and deliverance. He is those things. In himself, he is their provision. He is their rescue. He is their deliverance and their leader. He's the thing that they need. He's the thing they're really hungry for. He's the one who provides the rescue they need in the wilderness. He's the one who brings them safely to shore. That's the shore he's called them to go. And yet the people, they miss that. Now don't get me wrong, right? They make the connection between Jesus and Moses. They see that part. Right? Verse 14, after the, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world, right? They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, when Moses, he promised God's people, he said to them, one day God's going to raise up from in you another prophet who's like me. And he says, you should listen to them. See, the problem is, is that they stop there. They miss that Jesus isn't just a prophet like Moses, but that he is the greater than Moses. You see, they see Jesus just like they saw Moses, right? This kind of divine middleman. Right? Not somebody to worship, but someone merely who can help them get what they think that they need. 
And you know that's the case because you look in verse 15, right? Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. See, the Passover, it wasn't just a religious festival. It was kind of like this nationalistic festival, right? If you think about Passover, think about like July 4th, right? It's like Liberation Day, Freedom Day, Rescue Day, right? The Passover festival, right? It was this rallying point for the nationalistic zeal in Israel. The crowd think if Moses right, had, set, had led our people out of slavery in Egypt, then surely this, this coming prophet that he said would come, surely they're going to rescue us from our current slavery and our current situation under Roman oppression, right? That's what they really want anyways. You see, the crowds, they saw Jesus' powerful sign, but instead of leading them towards a humble worship, they merely see Jesus as the means to achieving their own goals. He's just a means to their end. He's just this powerful wonder worker who can finally get them the thing they think they're really after. The commentator sums it all up this way. He says, in the end, the picture is penetratingly clear. They have absolutely no clue what they've just witnessed. And in their arrogance, they wish to exploit Jesus like a marketing company exploits a new household invention. And yet here's the reality. Jesus will not be used by people. He is not a mere resource to be used for our own agendas. He's the great king and creator of everything. And he's come to be for people not merely a means to their own physical and political and economic ends, but to be their means and their end in himself. He's come not just to offer God's powerful provision to them for their empty bellies, but to be God's provision for their hungry souls by offering not just, and not just some bread, but by offering himself as the abundant, overflowing provision that satisfies in the midst of the wilderness. And he's not just come to rescue them from their situations, whether that be the raging storms in nature or in their politics. He's come to rescue them from the penalty of their sin and their rebellion and God's just, righteous, coming wrath for it all. And he's not come to bring them where they want to go. He's come to bring them safely to the place that he has always been leading them towards You see, he's not just like Moses. He's not just a mediator of God's blessings or gifts or rescue or provision. He's the God of Moses himself. In himself, he is the rescue. He is the deliverance. He's the provision. So every week when we take communion, that's part of what we're remembering and celebrating. That's part of what we're reminding ourselves about that Jesus' body and blood was broken and shed for us so that through faith in him, you and I might receive the provision and rescue and deliverance that we actually need. That we might have our hungry souls satisfied not by Jesus' gifts, but by him. That we might have our sin removed, not just our bad situations. That we might be brought into a place that he's leading us to, not just the places we think we need to go. This communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. The whole message of John is that the one thing that does that is when we put our faith in Jesus. For him to be our provision, for him to be our rescue, for him to be our deliverance. Not just the means to whatever provision and rescue and deliverance we think we're after. And so if you've trusted and believed in Jesus to be not just like Moses, not the means to an end, but to be the God of Moses, the end in and of himself. 
and go back and take communion during our time of worship. There's a table on the left and on the right in the back of the room. You can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of him. And not just all that he's done for us, but all he is for us. And if you're here this morning, you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to trust in him, what it means for him to be your provision and rescue and deliverance. I just want you to know you're welcome here in our church. And you're like, I can't, like, I'm so glad that you're here. I encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after going through religious rituals and going through the motions. What he's after is a heart that has set themselves on him, whose hope is in him, whose trust is in him, who sees him not as a means to an end, but as the end in and of itself. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And he's come, he's brought He has brought you here this morning so that you might see who he is for you. That you might see him as the thing you are longing after. The one thing that satisfies, the one thing that rescues, the one thing that brings you safely to where you're trying to get to. So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I just encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, talk with God. See, the people in the passage, they have this great enthusiasm for Jesus. They're really excited about him. See, the problem is that they're excited about a false version of him. They've missed who he really is. They've seen him merely as a powerful prophet, as a means to their own ends, not as the God who they're invited to worship and bow down to. See, in Jesus, he flees from them. He will not be used as a tool to meet their own agendas. And the invitation this morning is the same for us. It's not just that we see Jesus as the ultimate Moses, the God of Moses and the prophets, but that in seeing him as God, that we might see him as the goal and the prize and the thing to be longed after, the thing we're going to see next week that Jesus tells us to, to pursue with all our might. He's not merely a means to our own ends. And I just want to encourage you to ask the question this morning. So we think about responding to God's word. Do you see Jesus as useful or do you see him as glorious? See, the difference makes, like that, that difference makes all the difference in the world. Is he just a means to your own ends or is he the one who transforms your desires, satisfies your soul, and creates in you a safe harbor? See, one of the ways you can tell if Jesus is just useful to you, but he's not glorious, is if, is if there's always an if in your service of him, in your obedience to him. There's always as long as. God is, if you'll do this for me, then I'll obey, then I'll follow, then I'll worship. As long as you meet this need of mine, then, then I'll come and, and follow after you. And the reality is, is that if, as long as there is an if, whatever's on the other side of that if, whatever's on the other side of that, as long as you do, God, that's the real God. That's your real God. That's the thing that you're really living for. And what it shows is that, is that the God that you think you're worshiping in Jesus is a false one. And he's just become a means to your own ends. And Jesus will not be a means to your ends. That's not who he is. And not out of anger for you will he refuse to be that, but in love for you. In love for you, he will refuse to be just a tool. 
Because there's life not in seeing him as a means to an end, but in seeing him as the end itself. That's the one place there is. You see, on the flip side of seeing Jesus as useful is if we might see him as glorious. And if you see him as glorious, if you see him as the God of the prophets, not just a means to your ends, what you'll find is increasingly that he's the thing you want most. Increasingly, slowly, over time, the direction of your life will be headed towards him and his purposes, not your own. And what you'll find is that the thing you'll be praying about most is not just that you'll be rescued from bad situations, but that in the midst of whatever situations you find yourself in, you'll be praying, asking that God might help you to trust him no matter what the storm is. And you'll find that in the midst of the storms where once you were full of hopelessness and fear, Increasingly, what you will be characterized by is a confidence that comes from being safe in the boat with Jesus as the Lord of the storm. And he doesn't always bring you out of it, but he is always with you in it. And if he's glorious, that's enough. If he's just useful, when it stops working out, you're going to run from him. But if he's glorious, then no matter what, you'll run towards him. That's the invitation of the gospel, that we might run towards Jesus, that we might see him not just as useful, but as glorious, that we might see him as the very, not a means to the thing we're after, but as the thing we're after in himself. Our rescue, our provision, our deliverance, he's those things. And he is them for you, if you but trust in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we're so grateful for the stories that you've given us that John's told us about here in chapter 6. And we're so thankful, Jesus, that these signs that you give to help us see you rightly, to help us see you more fully, are not just stories made up, but they're the real truth. That you really did feed a crowd of 20,000, and you really did walk on the waves like it was a Sunday stroll, and you really did bring that boat to shore. Jesus, we are so grateful not just for the reality of those stories, but for the truth that they show us about you. You're not just a powerful wonder worker. You're not a mediator of God's provision and rescue. You're God himself. And as God, you are the thing we are after, not just the means to what we think we need. And so Jesus, would you help us to lay down all that stuff that we're looking to for, to lay down all the things that we see you as a means to an end with and instead invite you to be both the means and the end of our lives. That you might be the thing we are after, the thing that satisfies and rescues and delivers. And might we turn in faith, trusting you, Jesus, to be all those things for us and more. Thanks that you are more than enough. We love you, God. Amen.